Hello, my name is Bob Pickles, and on behalf of Canon, welcome to Illuminate Connects, a Canon podcast. Well, welcome everyone to the Canon Illuminate podcast series. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by David Mead to discuss resilience and motivation. David is a leading voice in business, a broadcaster, and a researcher in one of Ireland's leading universities. He's dedicated his career to understanding what makes humans tick and how it affects the way they think, feel, and act. So a very warm welcome, David. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. David, it's a great pleasure. I'm going to kick straight off, if that's all right. And um, we're going to spend the rest of the uh, session here talking about resilience and motivation. But I thought I'd start off just by asking, you know, here, here we are, all these strange things. And I just wonder how this is all affecting you, David, personally, in your business or in your teams? You know, my primary irritation at the moment is everyone's overuse of the word unprecedented. But apart from that, uh, everything that we're going through at the moment, it's it really is extraordinary. The new types of challenges that it's creating for, for me and everyone around me, I suppose, from a business point of view, I'm quite lucky. Most of my work is speaking at corporate events around the world. And while I might usually travel um, anywhere on a plane from five to seven times a week, now I'm traveling to my spare bedroom five to seven times a week. And all of the events that I would have been speaking at are happening virtually. So look, from a business point of view, it hasn't really affected us in terms of turnover. The pipeline has definitely slowed down, but it certainly hasn't moved to, to a halt. From a team point of view, when I look around, we've got seven full-time employees and some are furloughed as a business necessity and some aren't. And, and truthfully, that's creating some unusual uh, relationships in the workplace. It's uh, people handle furloughing in very different ways. Some of our team are finding it quite tough. Some are finding it quite lonely. One of them has bought herself a hot tub, no exaggeration. So she's having a great time. We are, like everyone else, adjusting to that irritating phrase that we're now going to have to call the noon normal, but we're getting there. Well, that's really interesting and a perfect illustration of just how far and wide this uh, circum the circumstances are reaching and touching people in different ways, David. I, I just wonder how you make sure that you bring your best self to work, given all those challenges. Uh, you know, how do we inspire, how do you inspire those around you to do the same, despite everything that's going on? In my primary career, I was a researcher and an academic in, in a university, and I looked at the characteristics of high-performing teams. What made high-performing teams work at their best then is exactly the same today. And, and we know few things drive people's ability to achieve their best work and bring their best selves to work than their ability to build meaningful human connections with the people around them. Now, of course, that's made ever more challenging today when we're all working remotely, but actually the tenets of that stay the same. And every time I think about this, I'm, I'm reminded of an experiment that happened best part of 60 years ago now in a light bulb factory. They were in the unenviable scenario of spending too much money to illuminate the manufacturing line where they made their own light bulbs. So it was a really ironic challenge. And around the board, they came up with many different suggestions. Some said, well, why don't we put in glass ceilings? Some said, why don't we double our daytime shift so more people can work when there's naturally free daylight? 
One of the suggestions was, well, look, why don't we just reduce the amount of energy that goes to the light bulb? So bring it down by about 10 or 15 percent. And there were loads of worries about this. They thought, well, maybe it'll cause eye strain. Maybe there'll be more wastage. Maybe there'll be more damage. People will have headaches, migraines. They'll be off sick more. So they decided just to not tell the people on the production line. And they did it. They reduced the power. They wandered around and they said, hey, how's everything? And everyone said, well, everything is still fine. They said, have you noticed anything? No, we haven't noticed anything. And they checked in. And at the end of the quarter, inexplicably, productivity went up. So around the board, they decided, well, let's do it again. And they reduced the power a little bit more. And again, went around and said, hey, how's everything? Have you noticed anything? Any changes? Are you happy? Are you good? I'm good. We're good. We're all good. And again, at the end of that second quarter, productivity went up. And this is almost 60 years old. And back then, some people communicating on this, some people commenting on it suggested, well, gosh, maybe people work better in darker situations. Maybe they focus more, maybe they pay more attention. But actually, what we realize is for the first time ever in research terms, we realize that it's the human connections. It's the meaningful day-to-day conversations that we have with the people who are working inside our business and alongside us that really helps them, inspire them to do their best work. It's part of the DNA of a great team and of a great organization. And in that scenario, these workplace conversations forced the leadership to have meaningful personal conversations that led to talking about their life, their home, their family, uh, what it is that they love to do outside of work, not just in work. And actually, it became like a type of alchemy. And we need to remind ourselves that in this climate today, it doesn't matter whether you work in software, whether you work in printing or any of those supply industries, we need to do the same thing. We need to take and make the opportunities to have meaningful human connections with the people around us. Because even though we're working remotely, they still need that sense of belonging, that sense of having a human connection. And that really is what, for me, helps bring our best self to work in what is a really challenging time. Yes, absolutely. And do you think that, you know, if we look forward a little bit um, to a time when maybe we aren't um, required to work so remotely, do you think there's some good things that will carry through and, and, and assist with what you've just described? I really hope the sense of caring about the person to our right and to our left is maintained. And I believe it will, because Every one of us that are sitting at home at the moment, whether we're at home with our family with 12 kids running around and trying to balance homeschooling with homeworking, with home shopping, and also perhaps spending a little bit more time with our spouses than we will have done in the past. I think that that has opened our eyes and opened our ears to the fact that the people that we work with every day are not getting it easy at the moment. And it has created a sense of flexibility, a sense of openness. It's created, I think, deeper conversations between colleagues offline and online. And I hope that that sense of empathy continues when we reach whatever this new normal will be. And truthfully, I believe it will. But organizations need to support that and create platforms that allow it to happen. Yes, exactly. And and if uncertainty is the new certainty, our resilience is going to be tested, David. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about, you know, what, what's the difference between somebody who's just good and somebody who's really great at this? Well, you know, uh, the only thing that separates good organizations from great is discretionary effort. And that's that 1%, 3%, 5% that our people choose to either do or not do when they think no one else is watching. And years ago, I remember my dad used to say, you judge a person by how they behave when they think no one else is paying attention. Now, I'm certain he stole it from a fridge magnet in an airport, but nonetheless, let's credit it to him all the same. And and I think it's, it's exactly the same inside our organizations 
outcomes today, if we really do want our people to achieve discretionary effort, if we want them to see opportunities to do more, to do better for our clients and for their colleagues, then we need to accept that in, in these remote circumstances, we're going to need to give them some autonomy. We're going to need to give them the opportunity to choose how they spend their time, why they spend their time, and also perhaps to monitor and measure their own performance. And there is a weird seesaw happening at the moment. I see some clients that are hyper-monitoring employees because they're working remotely and culturally that is perhaps a reflection of what trust means inside their organization. But the other side of that is understanding that our colleagues, if they understand the cultural fabric of, of what it is that makes our business work, if they understand why our customers need us, Actually, they tend to not drop the ball when they are given that independence, that autonomy, that ability to manage the way that they work. Oftentimes, they significantly exceed our expectations. And truthfully, I think one of the big opportunities, and I know it's hard to use that word in this climate, that word opportunity, but I think one of the big opportunities that will come out of this is that organizations will realize that some people really can flourish if they work from home, if they work independently, and they're left to their own devices as and when they want to produce results. That's interesting, yes. And so that that sort of motivation to choose to do the right thing, to give that extra two, three, five percent of discretionary effort is something that we can encourage by um, respecting people. But was, is there anything in there about how we reward people in this situation, David? Is there anything, you know, traditional reward mechanisms may not be as useful? Is that is that a, a useful conversation? I have to say, I, I have looked at reward and recognition for decades now, and almost every single piece of work points to a couple of really simple lessons. The first thing is, let's all accept, we like money. Money's lovely. Money is delicious. But never in history has a piece of research ever shown that reward and recognition that is fiscal or financial only helps people achieve their best work, especially in times of crisis. There are loads of examples of this. There is one great piece of research that was carried out in pharmacies in the United States, and it was an intentionally boring and repetitive job. They had four groups of employees that had four different different reward levels. And um, one had a large financial reward, about $15, if they stacked the shelves correctly. One got a small financial reward of just a dollar. The third group got a chocolate bar. Now, it was only valued at a dollar, so it was the same value, the same cost to the business as group number two, but it wasn't any chocolate bar. It was their favorite chocolate bar. It was the one that they put down on the application form the moment that they agreed to take part in the study, and the final group received thanks only. Now, like all good psychological studies, I don't know, Bob, if you've ever taken part in one, but if you ever have, I want to assure you, you were lied to. This was <laughs> not about stacking shelves at all. What the researchers actually wanted to see was which of these reward structures created more productivity, more results, more engagement. And the results were astonishing. Those groups who were only receiving a financial reward for doing their job well consistently and predictably uh, reduced uh, in performance longitudinally. In other words, they got less items uh, on the shelves. They did it less well. They were less efficient, less effective. Now, interestingly, the group that had a little bit of thought to it, the chocolate bar, bearing in mind that this was a really cheap reward, it was only valued at a dollar, but it did have some thought. Over the course of the study, they maintained their performance for the entire period, but the thanks-only group increased their performance longitudinally through time by about 18%. Now, why was that the case? Now, 
when I say thanks only, what I mean is that they they weren't just sent a text by their manager to say, hey, well done. Thanks for taking part in that. I appreciate it. They didn't get an email that BCC'd everyone in the Western Hemisphere to say that they did a good job. Instead, they were sat down one-to-one, sometimes in person, sometimes on the phone, sometimes on a, on a video call and told that their leader couldn't thank them enough, that they said, we couldn't have done this without you. We know that you didn't need to take part in this. Your generosity in assisting us with this study will change the way that we look after our people, that we engage and inspire them in the future. We cannot thank you enough for being so giving. So they were given this one-to-one gratitude as, as their principal recognition. And they were the only group in that study and in many others that are similar that consistently, number one, raised their performance, but also number two, kept it up longitudinally. Because there are two types of motive in organizations. There is a market motive, that is our salary and the perks that come alongside it. But there's also a social motive. And the social motive, depending on which version of these studies that you look at, is up to five times more powerful than any type of financial reward. And if we're looking at our salary as the only thing that's really going to move the needle on our performance. If we look at financial reward as the only thing that will inspire discretionary effort in a crisis, then we're missing out not only on productivity, but also engagement, loyalty. And those groups that were in the thanks only, not only that, they were better self-leaders. If they saw a person to their left or to their right that was struggling, they took ownership of that and they worked hard to make sure that that person was supported. In the other groups, that didn't happen. And in the group that received thanks only, they also had significantly lower absenteeism, only about 4%, whereas the rest of the groups that received some sort of uh, market motive were nearly 20%, which echoes absenteeism across industries anyway. So ultimately what this does is it changes the relationship that an individual has, not only with their leader, but with the organization. It changes the DNA of it. It changes the fabric of it. If they feel like they're doing something that has meaning and purpose and also that it's recognized, then nothing is more powerful in difficult times like this. That's fascinating, David. So the link between selecting the correct or the best reward mechanism feeds directly into what we were talking about a little earlier, you know, bringing our best self to work, but also that discretionary effort that you talked about. The link between these three things is intrinsic. You you can't unseparate them, I suspect. Would that be your view? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. People are people and we need to feel that we matter. We need to feel that the work that we're doing is going somewhere. A really great study was, was carried out by Dan Ariely from the wonderful range of books called Predictably Irrational. If you haven't bought them and read them, I demand you drop everything and do it immediately. But he, a really easy study, he got people to build origami um, pieces from paper. And uh, some of them were saved and put on a shelf. Some of them were put into a cupboard and closed. And some of them afterwards were put straight into the bin. Now, all groups were given the same reward, but what happened to them afterwards differed. They were either displayed with pride or they either hidden in a cupboard or put straight into the bin. Now, remember, they all get the same financial reward. And as you might imagine, those who were immediately put into the bin produced significantly less. And the reason for that is their work wasn't celebrated. It wasn't recognized. And we realized from that version of this type of study that people need to feel that their work matters. And that matters today more than anything. Yeah, absolutely. And as we look forward into the future, David, again, you know, um, 
reward in in all its various forms will have um, significant role to play as you as you've described would you put learning and development in that same sort of category of motivation and building people's resilience as part of the mechanisms of what an employer can provide is is learning and development up there with it Absolutely. A person only feels important when they feel like they're being invested in. And they know that in climates like this, that that type of investment is discretionary on the form of the business. And that's something that we're investing heavily in at the moment, while some of our employees are at home and working and some of our employees are at home and furloughed. They're all getting exactly the same personal and professional development opportunities. We should also realize that that it is really affordable in this climate to invest in some form of virtual learning, whether that's around emotional intelligence, whether that's around resilience, whether that's simply around understanding what role our mindset plays in dealing with challenges and opportunities. I really think that today is an unequaled opportunity to educate our teams and to help them be their best selves whenever this all settles down. You touched there on mindset. I guess I'd like to explore that a little bit and and ask you what role does mindset play in all of this as we talk, you know, we're talking about um, motivation and uh, working through adversity. What role does the uh, mindset, our individual mindset play in all of this? We're really lucky in the last 10 years, Bob, we've, we've really started to understand the science behind how the brain works and what impact it has on our ability to run towards the tough stuff that happens every day. Ultimately, we know that our brain, our approach to the things that happen to us every day is, broadly speaking, divided into two types of mindset, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. A Fixed mindset is defined by individuals who try to avoid challenges, who shy away from things that they don't know, who find it really difficult to handle criticism and feedback. And maybe they feel like their intelligence is fixed and can't actually be developed. I'm good at this and that's all that I'm good at. So I'm going to focus and do this. However, individuals that have growth mindset, they see challenges as opportunities. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but they know that whether it's juggling three balls for the first time or whether it's trying to deliver a presentation to colleagues, if it doesn't go well, they know that they learn something from it. They acknowledge and embrace those weaknesses and see them as badges of honor so that they can get better, be better and do better. They learn to give and receive constructive criticism incredibly effectively. And as a consequence, it really transforms the way that they feel about the things that happen to them every day. And what I will say is it's really easy, I think, for listeners here to think that, oh, well, I know someone who's got a fixed mindset and I know someone who's got a growth mindset, but this is a continuum. And we oscillate and move back and forth between these depending on what happens to us. So I might have a really strong growth mindset when it comes to delivering keynotes because I love them. That's my passionate. I Last year, I delivered 163 keynotes and it's like Oh, it's like catnip to me. I absolutely love it. But I have a reasonably fixed mindset when it comes to embracing sometimes new technologies. I know like, if a client comes to me and says that, oh, well, for this event, you need to work off a Windows machine. Sweet holy moly, that's the most difficult thing you can ever (laughs) say to me. This notion that I'm a growth person or I'm a fixed person is just absolutely nonsense. 
But when we look at these fixed and growth mindsets, it's something we really need to educate our people on because we know that if they're given just the language of what it is to live with a fixed or growth mindset, even just that simple education, it's amazing the difference that it makes because it causes them to stop and think every once in a while, whether it's through a Zoom call, whether it's through a virtual pitch or whether it's through a a catch up with the team or reading an email from a colleague that frankly, they don't naturally always get along with. It forces them to stop and ask themselves, hold on, where am I at the moment? As I read this email or listen to this pitch, am I doing so with a fixed mindset or a growth mindset? Because that mindset is incredibly contagious. And every once in a while, we need to ask ourselves, is ours worth catching? Well, that's amazing. And and the science is fascinating, David. And I, I wonder if you have any other kind of real life examples of the fixed versus growth mindset pattern um, that would help our listeners to pick up on it. Truthfully, examples exist all across the world in business, in entrepreneurship and sport. One story that I'm often reminded of is Torval and Dean. They worked for years on their Bolero routine. It was a really stunning, uh, a really stunning routine. Now, I don't know anything about ice skating, but I know that when I watch it, it's really breathtaking, but it's a very long routine. They wanted to enter it into the Winter Games, but to be eligible to get a medal, your routine has to be four minutes. That's what the rule says, but theirs was, I think, somewhere in the region of 20 minutes. Now, at that point, most athletes will have taken the fixed mindset approach and said, well, it's too long, so we simply can't do it. But they didn't. They took the growth mindset approach. They decided to try and make it work. They recruited a composer from Europe to see if they could shrink the piece of music down without losing the sense of what made the bolero the bolero. And this person worked at it for months and managed to get it down to four minutes and 16 seconds. How irritating, still too long to be eligible to get a medal. And again, at that point, most athletes will have said, well, we did our best. We got it as short as possible. They would have taken the fixed mindset and said, look, let's still just pick another piece of music. But they didn't. They stuck with that growth mindset approach. They looked into the rules and they realized that it said that to be eligible to get a medal, your routine has to be four minutes from the moment your blades hit the ice. So what that means, Bob, is if they started their routine for the first 16 or so seconds on their knees without the blades hitting the ice, that technically met the criteria for medal eligibility. That's what they did. And as a consequence, they got a score that has been occasionally matched but never beaten. They got a gold medal and it went down in history. Few examples in sport better pull together this notion of the growth mindset and how it creates a flexibility and it changes the lens through which we look at the tough stuff every day. And wherever any of our listeners are today, whoever they're working for, whatever their home situation is, there's always an opportunity to take this growth mindset approach to move the needle, not just on the performance of their business or their own outcomes, but actually in really tough times to improve lives for other people around. So I would encourage everyone to to take that approach and see what they can do. David, we've talked um, quite a lot about fixed uh, versus growth mindsets. And I'm, I'm just wondering to help our audience, if you could give us just a couple of tips on what can businesses do today as a takeaway from this podcast around that fixed versus growth mindset? Yes, Bob. I mean, fixed and growth mindsets are really simple concepts to take away. But if a business has never spent any time educating their people on what they mean and how important they are, then that really is where they should start today. Here's what I would recommend. Pop onto YouTube. There is a really simple 10 to 12 minute talk from the originator, Carol Dweck, on fixed and growth mindset. 
And I would encourage you to schedule some time with your team next week, play that at the beginning, ask people to take some notes and just have a conversation about it afterwards. Have an unguided and unstructured conversation about it, asking people to say where they are now, where they'd like to be and how the business might be able to support them. What's great about that is, first of all, it opens those lines of communication. It introduces them to the concepts and it also makes them realize that it's okay to tell your team and the people around you that things are not quite okay at the moment. The second thing is once you have that language of fixed and growth mindset, then hold yourself and the people around you accountable. Ask them to tell you and interrupt and interject if you're being really fixed mindset in a particular conversation. Because often that accountability, that that sense of comfortable challenge inside the organizations, it allows us to, number one, self-monitor, but also number two, it allows people who perhaps report to us who are maybe junior to us in the organization to be brave enough to say, hey, you're not holding yourself accountable to the same standards that you expect of us. So those are two really great things that I think we could do immediately next week that would help bring that fixed and growth mindset alive in our business. Oh, that's great. Thank you. That's really helpful, David. Uh, David, there'll be many people today listening to this podcast who are working either with or in or for remote teams. That's the very nature of how we're working at the moment. And I'm just looking to see if there are any practical guidance you can offer or tips and tricks that you can add to this conversation around managing and working in remote teams. In theatre, one of my careers years ago when I had a TV show in Ireland, we used to sell theatre tours off the back of it. And there is a phrase in theatre called breaking the fourth wall. And essentially that means the moment that an actor or a performer or a comedian leaves the stage and enters into the audience, it sort of transforms how the audience feels. They, They move a little bit further to the front of their seat. They start to sweat a little bit because they suddenly realize that, gosh, at any moment, I could be involved in this. They they typically don't expect an actor or a protagonist to leave the stage. And you know what? That same principle can be applied with remote teams. You need to find a way as a leader or as a colleague to physically break in some tactile way, in some meaningful physical way, that wall between the screens, between you and the people that you're working alongside. So there are loads of brilliant examples of this that we're doing now today that any organization could just copy and do straight away. Frankly, a lazy way of doing that is to is to have some team social time. You can have Friday drinks if you like. You can have a Zoom quiz, for instance. But there are much better ways of doing it. One of the things that our clients are doing at the moment are having virtual painting classes. And I know this sounds silly, but they're sending boxes to, to their team. They're instructing them to not open them until the Zoom session goes live. And maybe they have 30 or 40 or 50 colleagues on the line and a professional artist. And through the course of 90 minutes, everyone produces a piece of art in their living room from the supplies that they have been sent. Now, not only is this great fun and it It's engaging, but it also creates a shared activity that everyone is doing together. And because there's a physicality to it and a tactileness to it, they really feel like they're doing something as a unit. It also creates a really great sense of a horizon because when the teams do eventually come back together in a shared physical workspace, they can bring them all in and display them collectively. I think we need to find ways to break that fourth wall in the same way that a great theatre production does. Love that, David. Thank you very much indeed. That's great. 
It's very easy, I think, to focus on the here and now, to try to get through these really difficult times, um, to look for quick fixes and say, right, that's that, that's done. But do you have a feeling that there's more to it than that, that, um, you know, the uncertainty about the future and, and where we might go? I mean, maybe it's an extension of what you've just said. You know, the focus needs to shift maybe away from the immediate towards the, you know, that which is a little bit further out that we can't perhaps imagine yet. But we need to be thinking in that way. Yeah, right now today I'm working with some of the biggest and smallest businesses, uh, not just in the country, but across the world. And this notion of having a clear strategy today is just nonsense. And I think we all need to grow up and accept that our job today is to make sure that we embody constant reimagination of what's possible. The only way that we're going to do that is if we invest in constant dialogue, not only with our people, but also with our stakeholders as well. And that dialogue shouldn't be commercial dialogue. It should be checking in. It should be asking how they are. It should be offering support. The last thing that anyone should be doing in this moment is using it as an opportunity to flog or build uh, yield or margin. In actual fact, the, the organizations who will grow today are the ones who are not looking for quick fixes. They're the ones who are extending generosity, who are extending advice, who are willing to work with their stakeholders and their supply chain to help them reversion whatever that next step is. There are so many people out there at the moment who are frankly nauseatingly saying that, oh, well, there's always an opportunity in crisis. There's always an opportunity and a challenge. Instead, we should be creating strong human relationships with everyone that we serve so that when this does return to that new type of normal that we're all talking about, that actually we know them better and they know us better. I also think that the real currency of success for organizations now is to invest in their people's mental health. This is really tough. There are many of our colleagues who are not telling us how difficult they're finding it at the moment. And if we don't start to, to help on that today, then we're sitting on a whole new epidemic that will start to rise its head in 21, 22, and beyond. So as uncomfortable as it is to have tough conversations with the people around us about what's not working for them today, we need to do it if we're going to come back stronger and more resilient. Yes, and I, th I suppose that there will be many people as we emerge from these uh, these circumstances that um, you know people will be preparing perhaps for the very worst that they can imagine. And there's um, a lot of what you've said in the mindsets um, question we were talking about that maybe can prepare people for that. But is there anything else? You know that there may be fewer jobs. We may be moving towards a recession, and that's a difficult thought. But um, preparing for that and being ready for it and all the difficulties it will bring must must surely be a, a key factor. There's a huge amount of research that, that proves that there is a best way to deal with change like this. But we know there is a real science behind how we deal with the the really bad days, the really tough stuff that happens in times of change and uncertainty. There's a great model. It's called the Kubler-Ross change curve model. And I suspect that many of us will be revisiting this time and time again because it predicts how our people deal with the darkest days, whether that is threat of job loss, whether that is a recession, or worse still, frankly, based on some of the predictions, we could be heading towards not just a recession, but maybe even a depression. And by that, I mean economically, not, not just culturally and socioculturally. But when we look at the Kubler-Ross change model, it essentially 
helps us predict how the people around us will respond to the um, the tough things that happen to them. First step is always denial. Gosh, I cannot believe that this has happened. I never dreamed that this could happen. Afterwards, we always move to frustration, this sense that this shouldn't have happened to us. We did everything correctly. And then it moves to the real clinical sense of depression for some people. And many people bounce back from that brilliantly. But other people, other people find that a little bit harder. And afterwards, we build experimentation. We make decisions. And our job is to, is to find whatever that new next step is. So for everyone listening, I would encourage them to look that up, the Kubler-Ross change curve model. And the next time that you engage with a single individual inside your business who you're concerned about how they're thinking, how they're acting, how they're behaving... Ask yourself, where are they on that stage? Where are they on that model? And how can you make sure that that you're equipped to deal with where they are? We can only meet our people at their point of need. And that has never been more important at the moment. But there's also a real science behind how we deliver really bad news if we need to. And of course, we'd rather not. But if we do, we must do it well. And in the clinical space, when we need to deliver tough news to someone, there is a model called the spikes model. This is exactly the same model that we use to deliver news to cancer patients, to people in in really challenging clinical scenarios. And the spikes model suggests that we should, first of all, set up and and start in the correct way. We should mentally rehearse the conversation that we're going to have with the individual that we should sit down with. Second of all, the P in spikes stands for perception. We need to ask them what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what things look like on on its best day and what it feels like it might be like on its worst day. The next is invitation because we must ask the patient or in this case, the employee, we must have an invitation from them to have a challenging conversation. We must know that they know that it's coming. At that point, uh, the next step is K, knowledge, where we provide information in small and manageable pieces so that we're not overwhelming them with the reality. And then we invest time in understanding their emotions and building a strategy and a summary afterwards. Those two models I really do think every leader, every business person, everyone listening to the podcast should just take five minutes to consider the impact of the Kubler-Ross change curve model. And I know this is getting very sciencey, and the spikes model of delivering bad news. If we just equip ourselves with those, I promise you the next two months, three months, nine months, 12 months will be better, not only for the people around us, but for us too. Well, that's fascinating, David. And thanks very much for referencing those um, those two pieces of science and work uh, that, that backs up uh, what you're saying. Um, well, I, I think it's uh, just about time to wrap up, David. And um, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, Bob, it's been a great pleasure. I've loved working with Canon for years. And the Illuminate program is just such an incredible way to, to stretch your audience, to, to stretch your network and everyone that's involved in the Canon family. I send my best wishes to everyone. If anyone has any questions on anything that I've covered here today, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook. I'm always here to help and I'll catch up with you all again soon. 